If you have a Bible, let's open it to our text where Paul read for us earlier, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. I've asked them to put this on, and uh, we'll leave it up for the duration of this study. In the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word back to me that I may go and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them, till he came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, And when they had come into the home, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Christmas Eve, 29th. 2018, can't believe it, another year. So when was Jesus born? That's our question. Well, it wasn't December 25th. Uh, Then why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Well, I have to give you a little bit of background in history. When the Roman... Emperor Constantine became a Christian. It was about the year 312 A.D. Up until that time, um, there were many Christians in Rome. And when he became a believer, they were highly persecuted, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, He ordered an, um, an edict that was called the Edict of Toleration. Because up until that time, if you were a Christian living in Rome, you lived underground in what we call the catacombs Uh, for fear of your life. If you were found as a Christian, um, you could have been given to the lions, burned at the stake. Uh, It was a capital crime until Constantine comes along and he declares this edict of toleration and the Christians that were in the catacombs, there's three main ones around uh, Rome, and they were able to come up and 
become normal citizens because of Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity. It's debated whether it was genuine, whether it was politically motive, motivated. Either way, the Christians came out of, out of the catacomb. Um, quick side story here. <clears throat> in one of our trips to Israel, we stopped off in Rome and went to the Colosseum and um, was impressed with the city. But what I was most impressed with is that we actually went to one of the catacombs. Now, we were a, a tour group, and there was other tour groups in front of us, and the place where we wanted to have our Bible study in the catacomb, this group was going on and on and on, and uh, the tour manager down there could see I was sort of pacing a cage and getting a little impatient with the length of their um, Bible study, and uh, he, he, he came over and he, he said, come here, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, what's up? He says, these guys, it looks like they're going to be here for a while. How would you like to go where nobody else gets to go in the catacombs? And I go, yeah. (laughs) So he says, you have to stay real close because it's going to be dark. And the the, uh, tunnels are so complex, you could very easily get lost. So he led us into, and we had on, on both sides of the wall, I remember there were uh, carved out places where people actually slept in the, in the catacombs, where they hid. And we finally came into a room about maybe the quarter of the size of the sanctuary here, and he says, why don't you have your Bible study in here? So we have, I have a very personal feeling of um, what it must have been like to for the first 300 years to be a Christian in Rome. Because if you were caught, it was the lions or, or the being uh, burned. Or to survive, you had to live in the catacombs. What Constantine did is that uh, he Christianized the pagan holidays. Now, the reason we celebrate Christmas on December 25th is because up until Constantine, it was known as Saturnalia, the shortest day of the year, and that the sun god was slowly dying, thus the shortest day of the year. It was completely pagan. And so what he did is he simply made it Christian and declared that this was um, the year, that um, the, the time that Jesus was born. Uh, It's the time of the winter solstice. Again, it's the shortest day of the year. Jesus was probably born in late September. Judy and I listened for about an hour this morning of a study explaining to the day where they believe Jesus was. And it's a lengthy study. I would encourage you to do it, but most scholars agree that Jesus was probably born somewhere around the middle of September, late September. And uh, it's not December 25th. But now you know why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. It was simply a pagan holiday that was Christianized, the same with, the same with Easter. As we look at our study this morning, there are some misunderstandings about the wise men. If you have your Bibles, let's look at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men. Now, there's a little 
mark by my Bible, and when I look into the margin, it says magi. So the word for wise men here is more correctly translated magi. Men from the east came to Jerusalem. Well, um, we find the first misunderstanding is that um, uh, these wise men, who are these guys, we'll get to that in just a bit, but um, first of all, they didn't arrive the night Jesus was born. If you look at verse 11, some time has passed. They're no longer in the manger. Verse 11 says, when they had come into the house. We don't know the exact period of time, but the misunderstanding that a lot of people have, probably because of the song, (laughs) is that the wise men showed up on the night that Jesus was born, and that's simply not the case. Um, uh, Mary was in a house uh, with the young child, and that's where they worshiped him. Secondly, one of the misunderstandings about the wise men is we assume there were three of them, and that's inferred because if you look in verse um, 11, and the wise men come in, uh, there are three different gifts that are presented to them. So we come to the conclusion that there were three wise men. One of them gave them gold, one of them gave them frankincense, and one of them gave them myrrh. The reason this is not the case, if you go back to now verse 2, it said, said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard these things, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, if you have three guys riding on camels into Jerusalem, it's not going to cause the whole city of Jerusalem to be undone. No, they were not three. We're talking about a major entourage of uh, these men who are called the Magi. They would have been so many that the whole city, it says, was troubled. And three guys on a camel are, on camels are not going to have that kind of effect upon a city. But if it's a whole entourage, maybe many kings, many magi, and their supplies, uh, that would have been uh, troubling to see this entourage coming in to the city. Now, it begs the question, if they're magi, who are these guys? And again, uh, verse 1 tells us wise men, magi, it simply tells us that they were from the east. We get the word magic from the word magi. Um, Probably from Persia. I'm quoting Dr. Craig Chester right now, past president of Monterey Institute of Research and Astronomy. He gives the following description of the magi. The group of magi in question that came from the east, they might have been Medes or Persians, They probably served as court advisors, making forecasts and predictions for their royal patrons based on their study of the stars, about which they were quite knowledgeable. Magi often wandered from court to court, and it was not unusual for them to cover great distances in order to attend the birth 
or the crowning of a king. Paying their respects, offering gifts. It's not surprising, therefore, that Matthew would mention them as validation of Jesus' kingship or that Herod would regard their arrival as a very serious matter. The Magi were very important, powerful people of their day. The mention of their visit to Jerusalem uh, was Matthew's way of securing the testimony of the top scientific authorities to authenticate the royal birth of Jesus. But how did they know? Um, Herod was the king. All they knew is that they were following a star um, that led them to what we call Jerusalem. That was the, the headquarters. It makes sense for them to go there. But they were... Um, they were confused. They, they had questions. But I personally believe that they knew of the star because of Daniel. And with that, and if you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you turn back to uh, Daniel chapter 2 and just look at verses 46 to 49. While you're turning, let me just tell you that Daniel is... In Babylon, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has just had this incredible dream, and he wants it interpreted, so he calls for all the magi, all the wise men, all the counselors that were there, and they basically said to the king, tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And, and Nebuchadnezzar said, not so fast. You guys are just buying time. If you're as wise as you say that you are, it should be no problem for you to tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll listen to you, but unless you tell me what I dreamed, I'm not buying it. And he says, if you can't tell me, I'm going to kill every single one of you. Now that edict was against all the wise men in Babylon, which would have included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel gets a knock on the door and said, King has given an edict. He's dreamed a dream, and um, he's killing all the wise men because they won't tell him what his dream was or what it means. And Daniel says, not so fast. <laughs> Let me meet with the boys and have a prayer meeting. And he did. And the Lord revealed exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. And for those of you familiar with Daniel too, you know it was a great image with a head of gold, chest of silver, uh, thighs of uh, iron and clay and, and uh, uh, or bronze, and then of course the, the ten toes of iron and clay. And then he explained the interpretation. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the, you're the head of gold. And he said, but after you, there's going to rise another kingdom that's inferior to yours. And that was representing silver. And then after that will arise another one of bronze, which is inferior to the silver, and after that, the iron and the clay. And basically, he was laying out to Nebuchadnezzar um, what's common history to anybody who knows their history. The empires that have ruled the world, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Alexander the Great with the Grecian, Roman Empire, there has not been a world-conquering empire since the Romans, except there's one coming. And so 
when he gets done with all this, explaining it to Nebuchadnezzar, I can just see Nebuchadnezzar sitting up on the edge of his chair because Daniel is nailing this thing. And if you look um, at verse 45 of Daniel 2, He's still talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Inasmuch as you saw the stone, what was cut out of the mountain, without hands, and it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now the response, what happens next, is going to play into our study of the Magi. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Now, I want you to take note, and even if you're there, I want you to underline certain words because I'm going to give you the Hebrew meanings of the the words in verse 48. It says, then the king promoted. The word promoted is Rahab, to grow long and tall, to increase or to make great. So then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Now the word chief there is Rab, an administrator is Kagan, and now Daniel is basically the title in the Hebrew, when you take it and apply it to Daniel, his position would be called the chief, or Rab um, of the Magi, and that was his title. So here we have Daniel um, giving to uh, this, this place of position where he became the most important man next to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in the whole wide world. But he is over what we would call um, the Magi. So let's go back to Matthew chapter two and let's look at that again. Matthew two, the Magi, and I believe that um, these men uh, we're actually looking, because of Daniel, for certain signs that would uh, give clues to the timing of the birth of the Messiah. In verse 2, it says um, that, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen, notice it says, his star. In other words, the first prophecy that we have in our study tonight comes from Numbers 24, verse 17. It's a prophecy. Numbers 24, verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. But a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and a batter of the brow of Moab, and destroy the sons of Tumult. Here we have a reference a star coming out of Jacob as a reference to the Lord himself. And this is what the Magi probably were looking for, but I believe Daniel was the one that gave them the insight to actually look for it. Let's look at verses three through six. When Herod the king heard these things and he was troubled, 
and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired him, where was the Christ to be born? Now, the star had brought them to the area of Israel. And uh, so they know they're somewhere in the vicinity. And evidently, it it goes away for a while. And um, so the next thing they do is they ask this question, um, where is the Christ to be born? What's interesting here to me is that they actually knew. (laughs) We read in verse five, so they said, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written in the prophets. Now, for those of you who are familiar with our style here at Calvary, and maybe you're visiting tonight with family and friends, one one of the things that I like to do is point out when the Old Testament and the New Testament come together. It's one of the reasons we teach the entire Bible. And unless you teach the entire Bible, you're not gonna catch what was just said right here. This is the second prophecy in a a study that has 12 verses in it. And um, here's the second prophecy that's being fulfilled. I'm gonna have you turn to this one. It's actually in the book of Micah. Micah is right before Nahum, um, close to Habakkuk, and right after Jonah. So I'll give you a little time just to get to it, because I want to read the first four verses of Micah chapter 5. And one of the things when we go through the Bible is to be sensitive, that it can switch gears really fast. It can be talking about... um, local events, things that are taking place in Micah's time, and then it'll just jump into the future and give you a prophecy of where Jesus is going to be born, such as is the case in Micah. So if you're there, chapter five says, now gather yourselves in troops, O daughters of troops. He has laid seed against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. And now the prophecy that's quoted in Matthew. But you, Bethlehem, Euphratha, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been of old from everlasting. This could only refer to the Messiah. And we read then in the, that he would be rejected in verse three, therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Verse four is actually the work that the Lord would do when he had his earthly ministry. Verse four, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So let's go back to Matthew and we've gone through three or four verses, and again, we have um, Bible prophecy uh, being fulfilled uh, in these few verses. Verse six, let's read the fulfillment. They were waiting for this day to come. The question is asked by the wise men, and they say, well, it's Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now, we have to read between the lines here a little bit. We really don't know what happened. Did the star just disappear when they got close to Jerusalem? Because to pinpoint the birthplace of the king, they would have had to have this prophecy, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about six or seven miles away from Jerusalem. And so they sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search diligently for the young child and one who have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. Well, let me just tell you that Herod had no plans at all to go and worship him because his plan, if we read down in 16 through 18, is that when Herod realizes that he's been duped by the wise men and they take off and go home a different direction, he sends his henchmen and he kills every male child that's two years and younger. And that fulfills, and I'm pointing this out again because now we have a third prophecy in Matthew chapter two. In verse seven, um, it says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying a voice will be heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. So it could have been a period, if we go by how much time was it between Jesus' birth into the house? Well, we have a little hint here. It could have been a couple of years because Herod was uh, interested and was threatened by any child that was a male two years and younger. So there's the third prophecy that we have um, in, in this chapter. If we look um, in verse nine, they got the green light to go from the king. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. It's almost implying like it's reappearing and once again on the move. Until it came and stood over where the young child was. I'm not going to get into the debate. Was this the aligning of, of Venus and Mars at a certain time in history that caused uh, this particular event to happen? And... Um, or was it a supernatural thing that the Lord just did? And my answer to that is, anything too hard for God? <laughs> so whatever this star or object was, when it reappeared, uh, it stood over where the young child was. I believe, as in, the, uh, it doesn't show it in this picture here, actually a beam that would have focused right on, right on the property where this house would have been. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold. First of all, gold is, uh, represents kingship, gold for the king, but then frankincense, that's what the priest would use on the altar, the prayer altar. So this was 
a picture of uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He was both a king and a priest. But then it says, and also myrrh. Well, myrrh is an embalming ointment that they use to put on the body for burial. So what we have here is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold for his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, but myrrh predicting that he would come into this world and he would die. Now, what's gonna happen in the millennium is that it says from year to year, people will go to Jerusalem, to the Lord, and they will bring him gifts. And it says the gifts are gold and frankincense, but it leaves out myrrh. Why? Because the Lord dies once, he never needs to die again. Good place for an amen. (laughs) So in the kingdom, during the millennium, we'll be bringing him gold, we'll be bringing him frankincense. He's the king, but he's also our high priest, the one who is interceding uh, for us. Now, as we read this last verse here, then being divinely warned in a dream, so we have another miracle here, they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. It took a long time. Could have been six to eight months, maybe up to a year, for them to reach uh, their destination. Um, These wise men, uh, in the time that it took them to find the king of the Jews that they were looking for. The rest of the study is gonna be a little bit different for a Christmas Eve message. But one of the things that I really want to impress on all of us is just how valuable and important, the book that you have in your lap tonight. And I'm just gonna be able to begin to scratch the surface with its significance and its importance and um, how the Lord says that he honors this book, this one right here. He honors it above his own name and his name is holy. So to do that, let me introduce you to another wise man and his life, proving. Everybody heard what I just said. I said proving, right? Proving that the book that you hold, that we call the Bible, is indeed the word of God. It's infallible. It's inerrant from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. It is without error. And what I'm about to say to you, I hope it causes you to sit up and pay attention. I'm gonna prove it to you. I'm gonna prove to you this evening and challenge you to prove me otherwise um, that it's not the word of God. I could have just by the three prophecies we talked about here. Only God can reveal a matter before it happens and then have it come exactly, come to pass exactly the way he said it would. Well, this wise man that I wanna introduce you to, some of you already know. His name is Dr. Ivan Panin. Dr. Panin was born in Russia, December 12th, 1855. He came to America and graduated from Harvard in 1882. He got a doctorate as a mathematician. Then he receives Jesus as his Lord and Savior while he's at Harvard. He discovered after noticing certain patterns 
being a mathematician, that really caught his attention. And he discovered what we call today gametria in 1890. Um, let me give you the Reader's Digest version of what gamma tree is. In English, we have our alphabet and numerical char- characters. We have A, B, C, D, etc. And then we have numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. But both in Greek and in Hebrew, they only have one set of characters used for both words and numbers. When a word in Greek, for example, is written out, it actually has a mathematical value attributed to it. The value is called gametria. Now, the Greek word for Jesus, just for one example here, has a mathematical equivalent of 888. There are very many interesting mathematical relationships when the gametria of words and sentences are examined. When he discovered gametria, and I'll just hold up, um, I wish I could give each one of you one of these, but I'm going to challenge you to be brilliant tonight and prove me wrong by just going home and Google Dr. Ivan Pannon. You see, he spent the next 50 years of his life just doing this through the Bible. He came up with 43,000 pages of his work. This was long before computers. And he dedicated himself when he recognized that these mathematical equivalents to the words in the original Hebrew and in the Greek were so sophisticated that there's absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt that man had anything to do with the scriptures. When the Bible said all scripture is given by inspiration of God, you know what that means? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What Pannon does is he takes it a step farther. He says, prove me wrong. When he presented his work to Harvard, um, mathematicians, of course, they did everything within their power to discredit him because um, the authority that it would give to the scriptures. They were unable to do so. I'm having here, this is the, the Hebrew and the Greek. It's their alphabet. You've heard about the alpha and omega. Well, in Hebrew, the alpha is, is uh, um, equivalent to one, and the omega is equivalent to 900. And then you have, in Hebrew, 22 letters. Each one of those letters um, has a different um, number value attributed to it. So alpha is one, beta two, gamma three, delta four, and it's the same in the Greek. The Greek language is by far and away the most sophisticated And the New Testament, of course, Greek, and the Old Testament, uh, we have Hebrew. Um, I don't have anywhere near the time except to give you one example from the Old Testament. I'll do the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and then I'll give you uh, one example from the New Testament, and that was our Bible study yesterday, um, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So, um, get if you want to just open your Bible to Genesis 1-1 and um, we'll read read it and I'll give you a demonstration of what Dr. Pennon's work is this is just one verse it simply says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth 
but we're reading it in English. That's not the way it's translated when it's in the Hebrew. The partial listing of the phenomena that we call gametria, I will illustrate it here with these with this one verse in Genesis 1.1. The number of Hebrew words, seven. Oh, by the way, seven is the number of completion and perfection. Um, we have seven days in a week. Then what happens? You start over. Seven primary colors in a rainbow. Um, you have the scale, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and then you got to start over again, eight with do again. And uh, whether it's in... Uh, the the uh, color spectrum, or w- whether it's in music, seven is uh, the number of completion. So the number of Hebrew words here is seven. The number of letters in Genesis 1-1 are 28 in a Hebrew. That's seven times four, or 28. The first three Hebrew words translated in the beginning God created has 14 letters, or seven times two, that's 14. The last four Hebrew words, the heavens and the earth, have 14 letters, seven times two, again 14. The fourth and the fifth words have seven letters. The sixth and the seventh words have seven letters. The three key words, God, heaven, and earth, have 14 letters, seven times two, 14. The number of letters in the four remaining words is also 14, seven times two. The shortest word in the verse is in the middle word with seven letters. The Hebrew numeric value of the first, middle, and last letters is 133. That's seven times 19. The Hebrew numeric value of the first and last letters of all seven words is 1,393, or seven times 199 equals 1,393. Gang, that's just one verse. As you go through the scriptures and you find that this pattern is emerging, this man spent 50 years of his life going through every, when Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but not his word, even to the dot and a tittle, that's like dotting of an I and crossing of a T, you can't take a dot or a tittle out of the scriptures because it throws off this pattern that can be proven mathematically. That's just one verse, but it's consistent through the entire Bible. All right, let's go to the one example in the New Testament. This is where we were yesterday in our message, the birth of Jesus. And that's why we're here tonight. Um, studying and reading about when the Lord became flesh, as we read on Sunday, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. So in these verses, let's read it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, 
All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord. Here's prophecy number four. Saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him to his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. 18, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 verses in the English. However, um, when you apply it in the Greek, this is what you come up with, with these verses that deal with the birth of Christ. The number of words in the seven-word passage is 161, or seven times 23. The number of vocabulary words is 77, seven times 11. Six Greek words occur only in this passage and never again in Matthew. These six Greek words contain precisely 56 letters, or seven times eight. The number of distinct proper names in the passage is seven. The number of Greek letters in these seven proper names is 42, seven times six, 42. The number of words spoken by the angel to Joseph is 28, or seven times four. The number of Greek forms words used in this passage is 161, seven times 23. Um, The number eight, the number of Greek forms of words in the angel's speech is 35, or seven times five. And the number of letters in the angel's 35 forms of words is 168, or seven times 24, or 168. 43,000 pages, 50 years of his life. When he presented this, I have a track that I first read when I first got saved. This totally blew my mind because it begins with Genesis 1.1, but you can't take a letter out of the original Hebrew in Greek with throwing out this perfect pattern. And then he said, and this is back when, when he, he died, before he died, he wrote the challenge. And in the early 1900s, let's admit that $100,000 was a lot of money. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, are you kidding me? $100,000 is a lot of money today. (laughs) Okay. He basically just threw it at him. Said, prove me wrong. Anybody that can prove that this is not laid out the the way that it is in Gamatria with the the numerology. And by, by the time, every time you add one more element to it, the probability factor goes up. And this here is the seventh to the ninth power. But obviously when you're talking about the whole word of God being infallible to such a degree, nobody has ever collected that hundred grand. Don't you think there's a lot of people that probably tried? I probably would have for a hundred grand. Why do you do this? Well, I just wanted to point out um, another wise man that spent his life studying the word of God. Here it is Christmas Eve 2018. You know what the Bible says about the church in the last days? They're gonna fall away. Fall away from what? Well, Carol and Ed hit it on the head. They started church hopping. Oh, they were teaching the Bible. 
but then they got caught up into this. Oh, they were teaching the Bible, and then they got caught up in that. And here, if you will give yourself to it um, and seek out like Dr. Ivan Pannon did, well, we have this saying, don't we? Wise men still seek him. Wise men are still seeking him today. One thing that the scriptures say will happen is there will be a departure from sound doctrine. Well, what's sound doctrine? Sitting down and actually reading the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse and laboring in it. And that's not what people like today. We like things quick, we like things fast, and we want things done and over with. And then get on with what, as Ed would say, doing it my way. But when we come to the place where we're, the Bible is like a mirror, and we hold it up and it shows us how to live life. But gang, it can only really be accomplished one way. Um, I want you, Calvary Chapel of Appleton, you that are watching live stream and you that are just visiting, to be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Even when you're going through a book like we are uh, at Ben's Prayer on Saturday morning, the book of Numbers. I mean, it could get pretty tedious, but when, it, when you're into it, you'll, you'll dig out treasures like, I never saw that before. And it, th- these gold nuggets can only be um, captured when you see that wise men give their lives. That's what Dr. Ivan Penn, he could have done anything. Graduate from Harvard? No. He spent the rest of his life, 50 years of his life, coming up with 43,000 um, pages of gametria proving beyond any shadow of any doubt that man has absolutely nothing to do with the writing of this book. Now, Dwight, why do you say that? Because whenever we have a Christmas Eve service, there's always people visiting and watching live stream, and in the back of their minds, they're going, right, a star. (laughs) Right, wise men coming from uh, the east, and we have this magic star appearing. And they think, how dumb do you think we are anyway? Well, once you get into reading the scriptures and see just how in-depth and accurate they are, what does it do? It gives you faith. How does one get faith? The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I've discovered in 40 years of, of pastoring, Calvary Chapel of Appleton, 45 years of ministry, the deeper you go, gang, the deeper it gets. And it says for the countless ages to come, he's going to be revealing to us the treasures that are in this book. We sort of scratch the surface with one verse from Genesis 1.1 and seven or eight verses that are in, in that deal with the birth of Christ. We're getting ready right now to wrap things up like we always do, sing Silent Night before we go. We're gonna, many of us are gonna go home tonight exchange gifts to one another, spend time with families and friends. But here's my closing question for you. Have you ever received the greatest gift that's ever been given? We talked about this yesterday. My Bible says that every person is the same. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift, the real gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For by grace you have been saved. If I had any part of it, when 
you know, Ed was talking about his Roman Catholicism. There's got to be something I have to do because <laughs> that's what we've been taught. There's only one thing you can do. Offer the sacrifice of praise for this is the will of God concerning you. The disciples came to Jesus and said, what good work can we do for you? And Jesus said, believe on the one who is sent. That's it? That's it. You mean I have nothing I can do? Oh yeah, you have to love God now with all your heart and soul and strength and might and also love that person you're sitting next to. No shoulder rubbing now. <laughs> love your neighbor as your what? That yeah, tells us we love ourselves quite a bit. So the greatest commandment as, as we go out tonight is closing with this question. Understanding that if you're not born again, that when Adam sinned, the human race was infected with a deadly disease and only the blood of Jesus Christ can cure it. Good place for an amen. amen. That's why we say Jesus is the only way. And again, I say this a lot, but do you realize how politically incorrect that statement is in the days in which we live? Oh, you bigoted Christians. You guys think you the, have the only way. No, I don't say that. I says, this book says that. And if it says that, that there was a star that appeared over Bethlehem, uh, then I believe that a star appeared over Bethlehem in the very place that Jesus was born. I have no problem with it. I have a problem with anybody that doesn't have um, <clears throat> the honesty to get to the, the place where Bible prophecy by itself proves that this book is the, the word of God. And it is um, a gift that God has given to you. I'll close with these verses. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came. That's what we're here for tonight. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Yesterday I said, you know, Paul and I are gonna have a talk someday and I'm gonna argue with him. I said, you are not the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. (laughs) And then you guys can argue it out with him Also, in this love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his son, his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And finally, know that he loves you, gang. Um, you, You know why you're so special to him? We judge value of an object by its rarity. And there's only one of you. It always blows my mind when I think that God has this much space to work with from here to here, from here to here, and with seven billion people, eight billion people in the world, they all look different unless you're identical twins. And then he gives you a different voice. You can pick up the phone and with all eight million different voices in the world. And then you have your own personality that makes you unique like no other. So you're of great value where it says the very hairs of your head he has numbered. He counts every single one of them. Oh, he calls the stars by name too. And But above all that, uh, the Bible tells us that God is love and this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and he sent, praise God, his son to be the propitiation in our place for our sins. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. Don't be a fool and never turn that down. Don't cross the street 
without knowing that your sins are forgiven. Because the Bible says once to die, and then the judgment. You don't get another chance. And uh, here, here it is, another Christmas Eve, and the final question is, have you received the greatest gift ever given? That God sent his son into this world. Why? Just because he loves you. Don't turn it down when you hear that still small voice or the knocking. Just say, Lord, in your own way, invite him into your life and let him be the Lord of your life. Most of us here had, have passed like Ed and Carol and uh, gone through a lot of different things. But it's true that um, uh, when you meet another born-again Christian, you're family. And as they were going, they're saying, you're our family. Well, hi, family. Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are for the greatest gift that you sent your only begotten son uh, into this world. And then, Lord, you said it was expedient that you leave, and unless you leave, you wouldn't be able to send back the Holy Spirit. Lord, as you invested your life in those 12 men, you now, with the third part of the Trinity, were able to give your Holy Spirit into any person that would simply ask you to forgive them of their sins. And then, Lord, you promised to give us your Holy Spirit to live in us, to be a comforter, to walk with us through our difficult days and good days. And we're just grateful, Lord, uh, for your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, I pray for every family here this evening as we go our separate ways. Bless their fellowship, Lord, um, with their family and friends. And um, we just commit the rest of this evening to you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Merry Christmas, you guys.